All my life I've heard that faith is a crutch for weak people and just a fairy tale delusion that people tell themselves because death is scary and life is hard and the reality of the meaninglessness of it all is just too much to bear. So we tell ourselves a made-up story about some good loving God in the sky and an afterlife where we can eat all the pie we want. Well, if faith is a crutch for weak people, my question would be, why does Jesus consistently kick out my crutches and burst my fairy tales with a pin and make me sit in reality and face myself, face my pain, and own things that are no fun at all to own? If the whole thing's based on a fiction, then why is he so intent that I face the truth? Here's what I know about humans in pain, we all turn to destructive answers to problems that actually then become their own level of new problem. Let me give you some examples. Drugs, alcohol, porn addiction, workaholism. There's all manner of things we turn to to fill our pain or to cover over our pain. And Jesus, when I met him, kicked out my crutches and asked me to sit with my original problem because a lot of us turn to Jesus to get free of the problem we've made of our lives as we have turned to the wrong things to answer our root issues. But unless we let Jesus heal the root issues that are underneath the porn, underneath the alcohol, underneath the drugs, underneath the workaholism, underneath the anorexia, we're not really free yet. Alcoholics Anonymous calls it a dry drunk who gets rid of the alcohol, but doesn't deal with the reason they started drinking in the first place. Which is why I constantly talk about the importance of actually receiving God's love, drinking of our identity deeply. This is why I talk about the importance of an experiential Christianity that is also disciplined and ritualized. The ritual's there to carve out precious time for our hearts to actually encounter the reality that is believed. With no discipline, we can't have the encounter. With no encounter, we don't have the reality. Okay, we need the root issues dealt with, in other words. Another thing is, answers really are meaningless unless they're answering questions we actually have. But a lot of us haven't really learned how to ask questions, how to live with questions, how to live with tension and doubt and misunderstanding, and actually seek understanding slowly over time. Which is why I say doubt is really not not an enemy of faith. Unbelief might be an enemy of faith, is an enemy of faith, but doubt is often the soul's way of hungering after a better understanding of truth. Living with doubts and questions, stewarding them well, brings us into authentic faith when the answers that come really do correlate to the issues we're facing in life and the problems we're trying to solve. Someone who has all the answers already comes to you seeming to have big problems, but when you ask them, so what's the problem? They don't have any problems? isn't really in a learning mode, isn't really in a growing posture. They're just in a self-justification posture. Posture, And Jesus refuses to help the proud, but he will always be drawn to and deeply help the humble. So Jesus kicks out my crutches, pops my deceptions, and makes me sit with my pain. At least this is what he did for me when I first came to faith, and this is what he continues to do to me. Now that I'm in faith, he makes me sit with my question until I finally start to ask the right question. What is wrong with me and why am I so unhappy? (laughs) Just yesterday, somebody told me that anyone who tries to make the world a better place 
is not going to be very helpful, but someone who tries to make themselves a better person is going to influence everyone around them to be better. I'm convinced that we were made for fellowship with God and that the further we get from that, the less healthy we are at the root level and the closer we get to that, the healthier we become at the root level. And a primary way that God heals root issues is the way he does everything, by speaking. How did God create a universe? He spoke. How did Jesus calm the storm? He spoke. How did Jesus heal bodies and cast out demons and reconcile people to God and forgive sins? He did it with with a word. And today, right now, he heals hearts and opens eyes and changes perspectives and washes our understanding by speaking. One day when I was a young Christian, I remember saying to God, you know, these conversations we're having are pretty one-sided. It would be really great if you could, if you would talk back to me when we talked. How about, how about, I did a creative writing assignment where I imagined what you might be saying to me if we were face-to-face. And instantly the thought came back to me, that's fine, Tim, as long as what you put in my mouth matches what I put in my Bible. Now I'd circle the scriptures with a solid line to indicate that they are true, for real true and for sure, and I'd put dotted lines around the things that I did in my creative prayer journaling, the things that I thought might be God. I put dotted lines around them to indicate that there's a subjective element and I might be mistaken. But I did that ever since, and it's been a source of great help and growth in my closeness with God. And some of the things that he has said to me over the years in my listening prayer times have been profoundly helpful. As I reflect on the character of the things that God has said to me over the years, I think three words would be accurate descriptions of the kinds of things God has said. Comfort, encouragement, and wisdom. Comfort when I'm hurting, usually. God is comfort. He is the God of all comfort. He'll say things like, I know, I know. And he actually does know. He's been there. Jesus fully understands. The man of sorrows is familiar with suffering and grief not just empathizes, but understands. Last year, he told me that one of his primary love languages is actually touch. And as I reflected back, I was like, oh yeah, I see touch as a part of the way that you've loved me consistently, even when you didn't have a word to speak. The God who invites us to weep with those who mourn surely does it with us too. Second one, encouragement. When I'm doubtful and when I'm fearful, which is pretty dang often, he lifts my confidence again that His will for my life will come to pass. His purpose will come to pass through thorny ways will lead to a joyful end, as the song says. And not because I'm adequate or perfect, but because he is. To encourage someone is to impart courage to them. My primary temptation in life has not been anger and lust, though those have been a temptation. But my primary temptation has always been discouragement. And the theme of the encouragements has always been not how I can improve myself and must become better and stronger and wiser and sharper. No, the theme has always been how he is with me. And because he is with me, I'm okay. And it's going to be okay. The third piece of, as I describe or reflect on the character of God's voice in my life, has been wisdom. He gives me advice that is not just smart, it's wise. It lifts my perspective to see things differently, more clearly than I'm normally capable of seeing them, which is partly how I recognize it's him speaking. Some of the one-liners that God has said to me over the years told me things I didn't even understand until he told me, which is, you know, 
how you know it's God, but some of my most distinctive teachings started with a sentence, or maybe two, but usually just one sentence that he spoke into my spirit, which I then tracked down and explored more fully in the Bible and found a lot of life in. Here's something I deeply believe. Hearing God's voice is the birthright of every child of God. This is for everyone, not just prophets. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice. He didn't say we might hear his voice. He didn't say we could hear his voice if we would just try harder. He didn't say we should hear his voice. He said we hear his voice. In various ways, some of which we may not even recognize, we are already hearing his voice. So here's some things that I found about hearing God's voice. I found that identifying God's voice is way easier when my heart is in a posture of openness and trust. I found that I have a much harder time identifying God's voice when I'm anxious. I've also found that there are some kind of questions that God doesn't really seem interested in answering. And there are other kind of questions that God seems very quick to answer. They just put them in a talkative mood right away. So then I can hear the question, Hey Tim, what kind of questions doesn't God seem to like answering? Okay, any question that seems to paint God into a corner by having him make decisions for us and just tell us what to do tend to be non-starters. For example, any yes or no questions that sort of treat God like a magic eight ball, God should I questions. God, should I marry so-and-so? God, should I be a plumber? God, should I be a missionary? God, should I go to this college or that one? I'm not saying like God will never answer those kind of questions. He actually does answer questions like that sometimes. But what I'm trying to say is he's not super pumped about those kind of questions. To me, I think that those kind of questions, the God just tell me what to do questions, they're a mindset that is a real distortion of what God is like and what God wants for us and what faith is supposed to be like. I think it's a basic misunderstanding of what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's also exceptionally popular among Christians, especially young Christians, making major life decisions that will set the trajectory of the next 50 years of their life. So I understand. But just because something's popular doesn't mean it's right. And just because a lot of people are doing it doesn't mean it's a good idea. The God just tell me what to do mindset is actually what the Israelites had once they left Egypt after being slaves 400 years. God rescues them out of Egypt and brings them to the mountain and says, let's, let's meet. We want to have a meeting. And they refuse to go up to the mountain. And instead, they're terrified and they pull back and they go, Moses, you go up with God and then you just come down and tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. God, just tell me what to do. Why? Fear. Fear of failure. Fear of punishment. I think that's a part of the mindset. I don't want to screw up my life. Just tell me what to do. I don't want to screw up my marriage. Just tell me what to do. I want to make sure I don't miss God's will for my life. Just tell me what to do. It takes a little longer to get the slavery out of the Israelites than it does to get the Israelites out of slavery. Here's the thing, though. God never wanted robots. He doesn't want mindless slaves. He doesn't even want to control us. In fact, Jesus is the least controlling person I've ever met. And then somebody might be like, well... What good is hearing God's voice if he's not even going to tell us what to do? I got choices to make and I need answers pronto. I need to know if I should date so-and-so. All right, Discipleship 101. We primarily discern God's will using the Bible. Ever heard of the Bible? We don't need to hear God's voice in prayer about whether to 
rob a bank or kill someone who annoys us or date a non-Christian or cheat on a test, and we don't need a special leading of the Lord to give to the poor or encourage someone who looks down or pray for the sick to be healed or any other good thing that love would do. We already have a word from the Lord about all of that in the book. We don't need a new one. But if you're really in the mood to feel led, just let me give you a little life hack. Put a little wheel weight, a little tire weight in your pocket, the kind you use to balance tires. And the next time you see an opportunity for doing good in Jesus' name that can be done right now and only takes a minute, just reach into your pocket. And now that you're feeling led, get on with it. That's a dad joke and you're welcome. But if God isn't that interested in just telling us what to do, then what kind of questions does God love to answer? Here's a list. I got a list of questions God loves to answer. Ready? Holy Spirit, what is the Father like? God, are there any lies that I'm believing about you? When did I first learn that lie? God, where were you when that terrible thing happened? See, because a lot of us, we say, God, where were you as an accusation? But he actually wants us to lean into that and ask it for real. God, where were you? God, what is the truth that replaces that lie? Or how about we treat him like, you know, maybe he has feelings too. It's The way we pray is so weird. We run into his presence, confess a bunch of sins, ask for a bunch of things we need, and then run out. If you treated any other person on earth like that, they would be like, this is the weirdest relationship ever. They're totally (laughs) self-centered. So how about this one? Jesus, is there anything on your heart that you want to talk about today? And I know this one feels irreverent, but hi, God. How are you doing? Another question God loves to answer. God, is there anything that I'm carrying that I need to release to you? And a final one. God, who do I need to forgive? I find on that last question that if you ask Christians who they need to forgive, they say, no one, I love everyone. But if you ask them, who hurt you? Then they got a list. And uh, it's a trick question because who hurt you is the same question as who do you need to forgive? Okay. These kind of questions, I think they go straight to the root issues of our life, the heart issues of our life that I talked about at the beginning, that I talked about us covering over with unhealthy coping mechanisms, and then people try to get free of the coping mechanisms, but they don't deal with the root issue. These kind of questions give God an inroad to the root issues. And I think that might be why he's so talkative on these issues, because more than anything else, Jesus wants my heart. One of the most terrifying questions I ever asked the Lord was also one of the most life-changing questions, and it's this. God, how do you see me? His answer, of course, blew me away. Just blew me away. I was braced for impact, expecting that he was going to tell me exactly what kind of a disappointment of a son I am. And instead he said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Wow. And then I had to learn new theology. It turns out God is relating to me through Jesus, that I'm in a covenant that was secured by Jesus. His covenant is really with Jesus, but I'm in Jesus. So my relationship with God is as if I've not sinned and I am the beloved because I'm in the beloved. It's just good stuff. It's called the gospel. You should really look into it. Do you know your value? Do you know your identity, your sonship? 
Do you know your worth? You're worth the blood of Jesus. Okay, his perspective brings complete transformation all the way down to the root level, but only, only to the degree that we believe it. So if you relate, if you are frustrated that Jesus kicks out your crutches and wants you to live with your questions and doubts and pain until you ask, what is wrong with me and why am I so unhappy, if that at all relates. If you want to know God better and you want to develop your ability to hear God's voice, let me commend a practice to you called prayer. Prayer is not just talking to God. Prayer at its root is opening your soul to God. And what we find when we do is that God reciprocates and opens his soul to us. He speaks. He speaks. He speaks, of course, through his Bible. And one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to remind, remind us of the things that God has said in the past in the book. But he does speak. And all it takes is time and sincerity. Jesus said, everyone who asks receives. Everyone who knocks the doors opened. Everyone who seeks finds. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. Bank on it. It's definitely worth it. And he definitely loves you.